Hello, and welcome to Cool for Cats with me, Amy Hughes. We're inviting you in for black coffee and a chat about our favorite band, Squeeze. In this episode, I'm welcoming author of George Harrison in the 70s and journalist who has interviewed Glenn and Paul Carrick, Mr. Owen Ling. Hello, Owen. How are you? I'm very impressed with how you pronounced my name. Even British people tend to call me Egon or Ewan, or, and you got it right first time. Well, thank you. Uh, full transparency, though, I did ask you how to pronounce it phonetically, and it is it is very uh, it is very unusual. I've interviewed quite a few people, as you say, but I think the one person who got it straight away was Lol Cream of Ten CC. Owen, how are you? <laughs> well, it's funny because his name is Lol, and now LOL is so prevalent, you know, in in social media chats. You know, it's kind of funny that his name is that, but Owen Ling. How are you? How how are things there? How how is writing? How is music? Give me a give me a sort of temperature on what's going on. Well, I kind of feel like when you ask a question like that, I'm gonna be the hippie character in the Ruttles. Music has been transmogulized and converbasicized and uh that wonderful that wacky character Eric Idle plays. Um yeah, things are going well. I I like you, I write for Culture Sonar and I recently wrote a piece on Steve Marriott on my tastes are very antiquated. That's uh I'm before I at twenty nine years old, I'm I'm not quite as hip with the with say the Kanye Wests or the 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 various hot takes of the day, but I I like I I I like the 1970s, as well as it's getting on in years and it needs to be revisited um, constantly, as it were, uh, because obviously Steve Marriott was a force to be reckoned with, um, you know, and granted it it gave us Peter Frampton, yeah. to say the least, but you know I. I remember getting involved with the music of um, the small faces. Um, you know, it's like, it's like how, how music begats, you know, you tend to start to go backwards. You're like, Oh, Rod Stewart, which then means the faces, which then means the small faces. And yes. um, you discover, uh, you know, how influential, especially um, musicians such as Steve, who, who are no longer here. Um, and we talk about, obviously a lot of musicians. Uh, I was just talking with a friend of mine um, and I remembered, you know, going to see Jeff Buckley back in the nineties. Um, and a lot of, a lot of, but a lot of legacy artists like Keith Relf mm -hmm. um, and, and people like that. So the one person that we can talk about though, that is still around that is just absolutely vocally amazing right now is uh, Paul Carrick. So you have had the good pleasure to to speak with Mr. Carrick. Um, just off the top of your head, can you give me kind of like a sort of introduction to your avenue for Squeeze? That's uh, okay, yes. I think my introduction was actually through Mike and the Mechanics because I, I, I enjoyed Mike and the Mechanics when I was about 16, 17. I remember being on... Uh, we, I was on a holiday with my family, my parents in Italy when I was 16, and that's when I heard Over Your Shoulder for the first time, Over My Shoulder uh, for the first time, and uh, did some research on that. And I, I 
got to enjoy Mike and the Mechanics. Strangely enough, I actually tended to gravitate more towards the Paul Young songs than the Paul Carrick songs. Although, <laughs> don't tell him I said that. Uh, songs like All I Need, Need Is a Miracle or Beggar on a Beach of Gold. And I think it was through that that when I did some research on Paul Carrick, I got to hear about some of the other bands he was in. And then I realized, oh, if he sang, he sang for the band that had the big hit with Up the Junction, because it's played everywhere in Ireland. You could literally go into a cafe and it's ba da 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 ba da 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 da. It's it's as commonplace to say the East Enders theme. And uh, and once I once I did some more research on Squeeze, I discovered songs like Cool for Cats and Tempted, which it probably is the best Squeeze song if we're honest. I would say that a lot of people do gravitate towards Tempted, and it's a mixed bag because, of course, the fact that um, Paul sings it and it stood out the most, and yet in the canon of superficial squeezedom, uh, people don't realize that they can go back and hear things like Cool for Cats and Up the Junction. I mean, that's just my opinion because uh, Chris... Um, mentioned it, you know, several times. I, th I think he mentioned it once in his autobiography where, you know, hey, I'm in Squeeze, but I didn't sing Tempted. How, what's your perception at your age is how Tempted is, is viewed in the Squeeze canon? That's an excellent question. I would actually say it's the, it's probably the Squeeze song that, that most people know about, but wouldn't know that it's a Squeeze song. I mean, Cool for Cats, everyone knows that's a Squeeze song. Uh, of the Junction, everyone knows that's a Squeeze song. Uh, but Tempted is the one that is a song that has become such a soul standard. And then people may be surprised to say, oh, it's by that band. Because it's so, it's so, it's, it's so singular. It's so, it's so out of place. I mean, I'm sure lots of people would know that 10CC had songs like Life is a Minestrone and Dreadlock Holiday, but then you might, but what, I'm Not in Love, which is probably arguably their, their greatest track. It's so outside of that canon that you might not connect that with that band, if that makes sense. No, it does, because I, because I'm a sort of a musicologist, I could understand that because maybe I would come into... Um, I'm not in love and not realize it was 10 CC, but then go and do some research, you know, and, and find that out. But I think a lot of people also do not realize that even though they focus on tempted because Paul is just so uh, mesmerizing and connects so deeply on that style of song that their biggest hit here in the United States was hourglass. Really? Yes. Tempted benefited due to the fact that it was the video was played so much on MTV um, at the time. MTV started in the summer of 1981. There weren't many videos to be had, so to speak, um, that were crafted, you know, with that mindset. So Tempted was available and Tempted got played like crazy. Well, as it should. And I was also curious as to... The fact that um, with Paul, he is, and let me know your opinion here, he's a, he's a journeyman. I mean, he was a journeyman before Squeeze. So did that also kind of help his reputation? That's very interesting. I, I hope Paul Carrick t t doesn't take offense to this, but I see him as like one of Rock's invisible men. 
I, 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 there's this story about how he's going to work with Roger Waters or Pink Floyd on the wall performance in Berlin in 1990. But of course, he has to sing behind the wall. So you hear these incredible vocals, but you can't see him. And in a sense, when you think about the fact that he's sung for Squeeze, he's sung for Mike and the Mechanics, there's another band, he sang a song called How Long, but the, but the band escapes me right now. They sung all these great songs, but people don't realize it's him. Well, uh, okay, so the band that he sang for is Ace. That's it. And that song, How Long, actually was very big in the United States. It got to, like, number three. Um, I'm sure it was because of the style um, that was going on. They now classify it more as yacht rock. (laughs) Um, So I won't even go there, but... Paul's voice definitely was able to carry that style uh, back then and and very accepted. And I've seen a video of him from that time and he has a beard. (laughs) Please look it up. It's quite um, magnificent. I was, I was very shocked. So uh, with Paul, his, his legacy, if we can just use that word for a moment, tends to focus on those kind of highlights with how long, um, and then sort of working with a bunch of people before he he lands in Squeeze. Um, my understanding is that a lot of it was driven from Elvis Costello at that point, or do you understand that Paul just had basically a great reputation in, in the music industry in the UK? I suspect he meant, I'm looking at my interview now, and he did say that he, when I asked him about Mike and the Mechanics, he said, he said, he said that had that was after his work with Nick Lowe and Elvis Costello. So I know it was Elvis Costello who suggested him to sing Tempted, which uh, and when I interviewed Glenn Tilbrook, he was very generous about it, saying that saying that when the, when he sang Black Coffee in Bed, he was trying to do something like Paul Carrick could do, which I think is the ultimate compliment. Yes, and Glenn has said that Paul is one of the loveliest gentlemen he's ever met. Uh, that seems to that seems to come across. He's very unaffected, and the fact that he's willing to to be behind the scenes, literally. Yes, when I interviewed him, I said at the beginning, "It's wonderful to to speak to a, a musician of your caliber." All right, he said, "Get on with it." <laughs> <laughs> Does that make it sound like he's heard it a lot? <laughs> I think it's just more. All right, mate, come on. Okay, I'm just I'm just a guy from Sheffield. Yeah, I don't I don't intend to you know toot my own keyboard, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but he's also talked about that, um, where he's just like a guy that helps other people or or becomes part of a collaborative. Why is that so appealing? What is it about Paul? Well, it's just, I mean, the fact that he can that he can disappear into so many bands and that he doesn't bring ego into it, that he just knows he's good, but what he can do to make other people better, that's a very generous trait, I think. It it doesn't seem to um, happen quite often for somebody to sort of cross so many genres. Would you Would you agree on that? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's got one of the best vocals in in rock. I mean, he reminds me strangely of Phil Collins, although Collins has gotten a bit of a bad rap in, in recent years. But that's a massive shame because what Phil brought to so many musicians, often behind the scenes, was staggering. Like I mean, he plays with played with Robert Plant. He played with Paul McCartney. 
and he just he just tipped them to that extra he just tipped them to that point of greatness, which I think Paul McCarrick can do. Yeah, it's interesting that um do you know offhand, maybe I need to research this if if Paul Carrick ever contributed to the Prince's Trust, because to me that started right after Live Aid and then um although there was the the Prince's Trust has been all along, but eighty six seemed to focus on quite a few stars and it's kind of strange. He reminds me of um like Ray Cooper. Yes. Um, who is everywhere, uh, but you just don't know it. And I think Paul would have slotted in perfectly um, during that performance. There's a mid-year, uh, again, I've interviewed, I had interviewed mid-year back in the 90s, again, sort of like a a journeyman, but a guy who you can um, rely upon mm-hmm. for the background stuff. But in, re- in regards to Paul uh, Carrick, so he he comes in and he does all this work with Squeeze visually and, and musically. And then um, that's that. Um, what's your viewpoint about the one album for East Side Story, uh, the collection of work that he did on that? I think it's I think the East Side Story album might be the finest Squeeze album. I think I think I think is didn't Elvis Costello produce that one? Yes, he also, uh, I think that was also a co-produced with Roger uh, Beecherim as well. But that mm-hmm. was supposed to be Dave Edmonds, uh, Nick Lowe, Paul McCartney, and yes. and Elvis. Just give me a second. I'm going to get my interview with Glenn Tilbrook up. and Because um, I think Glenn Tilbrook mentioned that in the interview I did with him. I, I, for those who want to know, both interviews are on Penny Black, which is a British website. And I'm looking at it now... And he said, yes, he did. He does mention that in the interview. It was supposed to be all of them. And it was actually um, the sort of brain trust of Jake Riviera, who was Elvis's manager, who came in and kind of, um, you know, threw that out there. But it didn't work out because Paul uh, McCartney went to do tug of war. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick Lowe, they just kind of wanted to drink with him and it wasn't very productive. Yes. <laughs> they got in quintessence from Dave Edmonds. Um, and then they went and did everything else with Elvis. My, my understand is that basically he whipped him into shape. What would you say? <laughs> well, that's just Elvis Costello that he can, that he can, he can whip people into shape. I mean, he, he gets a great album out of the Pogues, it's an anarchic album, but it's still it's in such a controlled environment. And it seemed like that's what they needed at that point, rather than sort of going off the rails, um, which, you know, everything was kind of loose. You focus on the instrumentation. Um, just for me, uh, Paul Carrick's work in Piccadilly is phenomenal. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a massive Elvis Costello fan. The, the fact that he's very proud of his Irish heritage also makes me appeal. Also, it, it's a very appealing thing about him. Yeah. And um, like I said, I was just mentioning um, how things started to stand out a little bit more because Paul's style um, accentuates. It's it's not as sort of um, razzmatazz as Jules Holland's work. And... I think that tended to show a lot in in East Side Story as well. And then um, his voice just manages to stay true. Uh, Even when he came back and worked with them for some fantastic place, 
you hear that um, loving you tonight, it's like, wow, he just stepped out from 1981. How do you, th- how do you feel about that? Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you say. I'm probably going to be the worst guest ever. Um, I disagree with all of that. And uh, yeah, I, 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 was, it you, was it you who wrote the piece on Eastside Story for Culture Sonar? You know, that was not me. Um, it was another, it was another person who did that. And, um, although I would like to have, but, (laughs) um, I mean, there's, there's not a lot that you can say that's, that, uh, Paul didn't have a heavy sort of influence on, on that record. Um, and when you interviewed him, uh, was that in person or was that by, by Zoom or, uh, it was over the phone. It was a WhatsApp. Uh, it was. It, it wasn't visual. It was just done over the phone. And how did you feel like when you were? Is he got? Is he a guy that tends to look upon his past as, "Hey, this is where it got me"? Um, what it, What was your kind of like feeling when you were talking with him? Actually, he's he he seemed to suggest that he's he was quite philosophical about it. He. He, when I complimented him on some of his achievements, he just said, "Yeah, but they're all like thirty years old, all those songs." And he says, "What about what about new music? Why?" And he, like a lot of artists, he was more interested in what he was doing in the present than what he was doing in the past, uh, which I, I mean, which is a very life affirming, life affirming trait. Because he continues to perform. Um... Mm-hmm. He's got like a sort of now a swing soul big band sound to it. Yeah, he's got a. I mean, he he released an album. This was back in twenty twenty one. I mean, uh, and he was promoting an album. Uh, the the name escapes me, but it was like it. It had much more of the soul soul rock influences of his of his trajectory. And yeah, I, I said to him that on some of the tracks he sounded like Billy Preston. Uh, which he took as a was as a massive as a massive compliment. I'm just looking at my interview now and with Paul Carrick, and it was called One on One. Right, and he um, he tends to go that route constantly, wouldn't you say? Because it's not it's like this has become Paul Carrick. Yeah, uh, if I can read from my interview, I suggest I said. One on One is an extension of this metaphorical cupboard and documents the singer enjoying his later years. The album opens with Good and Ready, a smooth, steely Dan-esque track which sees the vocalist gliding over a tasty selection of horns, keys, and drums. Then there's You're Not Alone, a call for support during times of tremendous upheaval. Lighten Your Mood, like the title suggests, is a bouncy stroll through memory lane, while the guitar-heavy Shame on You, Shame on Me returns the vocalist to the blues genre where he most certainly belongs. And it's interesting too because there's some of his um, album covers that feature him holding a guitar. <laughs> yes, which I thought was kind of interesting. Has he ever talked about that? Well, he played guitar with Mike and the Mechanics. I mean, I, I think he, I think he plays on "Over My Shoulder." He does, certainly did in the video. It's just a, a little bit sort of um, you know mind jarring when you see that visual. Have you ever seen him recently in this kind of mode live? I I have confess I haven't seen him live, uh, but I, I I know he plays guitar and he ha- he he also played guitar with Mike and the Mechanics live on stage, like uh he, like he played guitar on the on on the Living Years. 
Yeah, you know, it's like so funny because before this podcast and I was talking about meeting Paul Carrick and actually seeing Paul Carrick with Mike and the Mechanics, that whole um, performance is almost a blank. <laughs> and I was not like dreaming. It it did actually happen that I did see Paul. But, you know, the Mike and the Mechanics era um, kind of, again, he has like these hills and valleys uh, where he's uh, exposed more to the public, so to speak in a, in a pop sense. And, um, so I just wanted to touch base on, on Mike and the mechanics that was supposed to be a side project, right? If I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think it was a case of the Mike Rutherford had, he performed vocals on his first two albums and he wasn't happy with his, with his vocals. So he decided to enlist singers and, and co-writers I don't. It kind of enveloped into a band more so than it. it, it I think. It, I think like many things, it was meant to be one album, but then it snowballed into something grander. How interesting is that? That um, you know, underperform as Mike Rutherford because you're basically you know in Genesis where Phil and earlier Peter were the stars, quote unquote, and then you bring in somebody of Paul Carrick. Uh, his caliber and the thing just takes off and also uh, Paul Young uh, not the Paul Young this is a different Paul Young who uh, bless his soul is no longer with us yes very sad so you know there's it just like you say it's snowballed because of Paul Carrick coming in and providing these undisputably uh, fantastic riffs and his voice yes would you say that the voice has really been his calling card perhaps i mean i made sure to to ask him about silent running when i so uh and he said i can he said they had a seven minute backing track with three chords that went can you hear me they told me to go in and blues away so he went for it and then then ba robertson went away and wrote a lyric to it the song was used in a science fiction film called on dangerous ground which i don't think i've ever seen I don't think I've ever seen it either, but it's kind of interesting because the feel of that song obviously gives off that kind of vibe. Yeah. <laughs> that sort of science fiction vibe. Um, sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but he says it in my interview. I was introduced to them by B.A. Robertson and was initially for Mike Rutherford's solo album. Exactly. And because um, I had read something too as well, where they, at that point when Mike was doing this album, that they had just done everything. And then both Pauls kind of came in and just sang. Yes, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes, I I I would agree. I interviewed Andrew Roachford a, a couple of years ago, and apparently, very similarly, he just was contacted by by Mike Rutherford to for to contribute to a to an album, and then he next thing you know, he's fronting the rebooted Mike and the Mechanics. So, what is with that? I mean, Paul Carrick was with the sort of I'll call it Mach One version. Yeah of Mike and the Mechanics for, for quite a while. He started then to become more uh, prolific, so to speak. Um, and then it kind of stopped after Paul Young's death. Yes. And so I don't know too much. So what has happened? Mike and the Mechanics has was revamped, came back out again? Yes. Um, I think it was 2016, uh, that he found Andrew Roachford. Roachford, of course, was popular in the eighties with with hits like "Cuddly Toy." Uh, he's a he's a singer who's been around for quite some time, and and there's another singer whose name I've forgotten about, but um, I think 
I think that the two singer dynamic just breathed new life into it for Mike Rutherford. I uh, after Paul Young died, I think I think they I think they all felt that they they, they felt like the, the the original the original band had lost some of its steam. But uh, the, this new iteration has revived it for Mike Rutherford. I haven't heard this from Paul Carrick, but I'm led to believe he was a little hurt by that Mike Rutherford didn't didn't tell him he was reviving it. I can't confirm if that's a hundred percent true, but I but, it's, but I do know that he felt. I don't know how how things are between him and Mike Rutherford now. It's slightly disconcerting, you know, that he might find out otherwise and not directly unless again mike rutherford thought well that was a version of mike and the mechanics that we're not revisiting yeah it, it must have made paul carrick feel like an employee when without him without his voice we wouldn't have the living years or silent running i mean it was the voice exactly and that's why i'm thinking how does it i guess i'll have to go and look um uh, to see how it's perceived it kind of feels like um journey Mm-hmm. <laughs> where yes. you get somebody who sounds like Steve Perry to sing the the massive hits. Yes. And um one of those people singing is not Mike Rutherford. <laughs> and I don't mean to be facetious about it truly obviously while Carrick has contributed so much to that band that I could I could understand um you know the reasoning behind not being called back so to speak. Um and the other interesting thing is is that it seems like Paul Carrick moves very fluidly um, through so many different genres, especially like you said, where he kind of lives within this pub rock style. Which I don't know. People have described that for how long? Do you do you understand that? I think it's pub rock in that it gets people singing in a pub. I think that's just the literal definition of pub rock. If people can sing along to a song with a with a pint in their hand. And it's pub rock because that does not seem right to me um but again i i understand the history back in that time about what was going on and the bands um that were supporting that that label um but i can understand also here in the united states with with paul and how long see that fit into the sort of fm genre mm-hmm. Uh, where there was long play, finally. It wasn't focused on the singles, so to speak. And um, although, you know, that was the single that that Paul sang on. Um, And then he moves to Roxy Music. I mean, that was like a revelation. He plays on on Roxy Music. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think he did it for the money, basically. Uh, I mean, they they clearly liked his keyboard playing. Um, I think I think actually weirdly, when I interviewed him, he seemed down on his keyboard playing. Like he almost thought, "Why is Eric Clapton hiring me?" Uh, I mean, I I know Clapton has become somewhat of a controversial figure in recent years due to his anti-vaccine policies and and some of the comments he made in the nineteen seventies. But I mean, I mean, if Clapton wants you in his band, he recognizes you're a talented musician. So clearly. If he wants you to replace Billy Preston, I mean, that shows that you're that, that you're a precocious musician. And you have a history, which is undeniable, um, especially with somebody like Paul. Like you say, he just kind of slots in. Yes. And um, this whole situation with Roger Waters singing literally from behind a wall mm-hmm. is just 
Um, I mean, that sounds kind of typical. It's it's almost like it leads into Mike and the mechanics. How would you would you view it that way? Well, I mean, he he he'd already performed with Mike and the mechanics by that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time he he played with Roger Waters, uh, I but when I interviewed Paul Carrick, he he was playing the whole oh I I can't complain sort of the sort of jolly northern English card of like I mean I could I could I, I mean I I left Sheffield I'm doing pretty well for myself, but um I I suspect he I suspect he he wishes more people might might know what a talent he is, which I think is fair enough considering considering what he brought to all these bands. Yeah, I mean, he he did have pop hits, literally, like literally after he left Squeeze, he did, um, you know, I Need You, which, again, was very popular as as a pop song. um, And that separated him away from the sound of of Squeeze. And then he even did, um, what was the other song he had on? Oh, Don't Shed a Tear which was a big hit in 1987. So now we're far removed from Squeeze and he is having a presence, you yes. know, right up until Mike and the Mechanics as a solo artist. But does he tend to not focus on those songs or that persona? I think it's more that while they were hits, they haven't had the lasting legacy of, say, uh, A Silent Running or Attempted, which are like, I don't know. Here in Ireland, you literally put on, you literally listen to like RTE or or a or Today FM, and they're bound to be they're bound to be played over over my shoulder. Is literally all over the continent of Europe. So these are just these monster hits versus these these distinguished hits he had in his solo career. If that makes sense. You know, it's just um, you got me thinking too that maybe some of this tends to stem from. Uh, cultural differences, maybe, or the way that um, radio is programmed or programmed back then, because the outstanding example of this would be uh, McCartney's uh, Mull of Kintyre. Yes. Which went like did zero in the United States. There was nothing happening with that song. Inconceivable. And exactly, it it has no meaning. It has no reference to anything. Barely played it then and now when he tours because I'm not sure why. Um, but do you? I, I kind of get that little bit of a feeling where the focus is on the hits in the United States and anything of significant impact. Um, and now speaking about Paul Carrick, um, doesn't register here. Does that, how do you feel about that train of thought? That's an interesting train of thought. Now, it's very interesting you bring up Paul McCartney because he, he, he plays completely different set lists in the US to what he does in the UK and Ireland. So, like, he'll play uh, Mullock Kintyre over here, but whereas over in the US, it'll be, he'll, he'll bring out the rockers from the Venus and Mars album, which he would never play on this side of the pond. I would love if he played uh, Call Me Back Again. Or or um, uh, letting go, which he played wonderfully in the U.S., but he wouldn't. He's more he's more focused on say the Beatles songs of the ballads on in the U.K. and Ireland than say the, those monster monster rockers, which are much more American focused. Uh, as for that train of thought, I guess you also have to. I guess you a lot of artists recognize that they're that people are paying good hard earned money and they want to hear these monster tracks. 
So, like, someone, if, if someone wants to see Paul Carrick, they want to hear Tempted, which, as he says, he doesn't mind playing it because he, because he basically made it a hit. And, I mean, the Squeeze guys aren't complaining. They're making the royalties from it. Now, oh, you know what? That just that just struck a thing with me too. So, Squeeze did, or I'm going to say Glenn and Chris. They decided, I think it was 2010 or so. I can't remember the exact year to redo a lot of Squeeze songs. It was called "Spot the Difference." Yes. And they brought Paul Carrick back in to re-record "Tempted." Mm-hmm. Uh, this was mainly due to the fact that um, Chris and Glenn did not own the masters to a lot of the songs that they did back at that time. So they decided it was mostly a Glenn driven project to, to do those songs over again. So have you heard the re-record of tempted with Paul Carrick? I have. Um, It's actually interesting because Glenn Tilbrook, when I interviewed him, he said that he prefers his vocal on the redone version of black coffee to the original because he felt he was a much more confident vocalist. That's what he told me. Yeah, he did say that, you know, it's it's hard to get that youngin kind of vibe uh back, but how interesting is it that he brings Paul Carrick or they bring Paul Carrick back into the fold to re-record and he sounds the same. I mean, it's scary. I agree. I mean, the only other artist who I think transcends like that uh, is Robert Smith who can literally sing like he he can sing Love Cats like it's 1982. I mean, he physically he looks very different to how he was in the eighties. I mean, uh, I mean, he's put on quite a lot of weight, but he sounds exactly the same. And a lot of complaints do, you know, not to disparage Paul, but we're going to for the moment, Paul McCartney, about his voice. Um, you look at Paul Carrick, who can do that, and even Glenn, who can do that, uh, so many years on, and. That's unfortunately what people would like to hear. Like you said, they want to hear what they heard 40 years ago, and that person is not that age anymore. Yes. And I'm not sure. A lot of people have speculated why Paul McCartney sounds the way he does, um, that he can't reach the lines that he does. However, somebody did do an AI-generated version of him singing a song from Egypt, Egypt Station. Yes. Which was a mind blow. It was like tug of war era, Paul singing Egypt station era. Yes. And so I'm, I don't know, are we blessed to have Paul Carrick being able to, you know, come back in and do what he did? Um, I don't know. That's interesting. I personally quite like the fact that we have a different eras of Paul. I mean, you, okay, let's call it old man McCartney. I find it. I think Old Man McCartney voice is perfect for the Women and Wives track, which was on his most recent album, McCartney Three. That it's a, it's about him looking uh, looking at all the blessings he has, all his grandchildren, the women who have influenced him. I don't think Paul McCartney in nineteen eighty two could have sung it as well with this kind of slightly lilting thing there. That's very good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I did, I did my Paul McCartney for Stuart Copeland. Uh, he told me that Rusty Anderson, he was in his band. And I was like, all right, Stuart, you can have him. But then he's mine. And Stuart said, that was a very good Macca. <laughs> it is. It is. It comes across quite good. And you're just doing it right off the cuff, which is lovely. But with 
let me let, let's kind of delve into a little bit of this um, legacy because um, there seems to be a tendency for um, people like Paul Carrick and Paul McCartney a couple of years ago, and even Rod Stewart. They start to mine songs from the forties. Um, you know, the sort of the swing era and what holds such a sway for people like that? Is it the vocal approach? It could be. It could also just, it's probably paying tribute to the records that were being played in the 1940s and 50s when they were young. So, I mean, it could be, it could be them coming full circle. You look at U2, who, who released an album this year, Songs of Surrender, which is playing much slower versions of the rock hits that made them rich and famous, probably as a way of saying thank you to like the pastoral Irish ballads they grew up listening to. It's it's almost like you couldn't imagine that happening. It's it's like a weird timeline of these, especially when I uh, think back to seeing you two and so young, mm-hmm. you know, and singing Gloria back on early days of MTV. And now, you know, you've got a 60-something Bono and The Edge uh, with um, David Letterman yes. talking about, let's go back to the beginning and, you know, you reinterpret it. I mean, how far do you take those reinterpretations of your own music? What would be your opinion on that? Well, I mean, I think go all the way. You mentioned Peter Gabriel. In 2010, he released... Uh, a, a covers album that was just based on strings and, and and then he released another one. So there were Scratch My Back and I'll Scratch Yours, where first of all he was he covered other people's works and then he covered his own and he just gave it this new dimension and this new pathos. And then of course the ultimate one is Both Sides Now. Uh, is it uh, the the singer is is it Joni Mitchell? She she re recorded it in two thousand and three, adding and she she was she was evoking and understanding the words she'd written as a younger woman. It is, it is disturbing, but, but also a very uh, insightful that a lot of these people who had a certain audience back at that time, do you sort of see with um, things that are going on nowadays with the passing, it seems every second of a rock icon that uh, they're sort of now wanting to be that person to um, sort of sing you a lullaby, but, you know, not in the literal sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, um, one of my favorite McCartney tracks in recent years is My Valentine, which is sort of a, a sort of a lullaby message, and it's very slow moving, and it's, it, suits his, it suits his autumnal voice, and, it, you know, it, it lulls you along. It's very sweet. And that's what I mean. There's this weird sort of thing where, like you had mentioned before the podcast began about being so young and and but being interested in music from 50 years ago. Yes. Um, and a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of your generation and slightly above it being appreciative and a lot of those people taking a hold of the music and and um, reinvesting uh, a look into that some of us you know get kind of trashed because we're boomers and you know (laughs) and you know oh you can't get past anything that doesn't you know like uh wet legs or something who who have made a breakthrough or um you know uh 
SZA, yeah. uh, you know, all of these singers who do have a voice, but yet um, they have so many more platforms um, and channels to, mm -hmm. to do that. And so maybe that's why, uh, you know, we want to see Paul Carrick sing something like Tempted because yeah. it stood out so much. Also, it's just such a wonderful song, and the arrangement is, I mean, uh, uh, Glenn Tilbrook, when he told me the, the original arrangement, he said it was like almost an ELO track. It was much faster. And he said, he, he said, thank God they didn't release it. Yeah, he, he, he said his ego took a little bit of a bruising um, when Elvis uh, suggested Paul Carrick sing it and not him. And I don't know if that's the weird thing. Like you said, it suffered a, a little bit visually for the United States, at least, when MTV started to go stratospheric. And you're wondering who's that, like, skinny tie, uh, punky haircut guy playing, you know, the Moog, and, or the Prophet. What was it, a Prophet? I think they showed it um, in the video. And then, you know, uh, he leaves, and they're another, they're a different band. Yeah. So, but I think Paul moves, Paul Carrick moves with the times, you know, he had his solo work with the sort of synthesizer based melodies, uh, even into Mike and the Mechanics, but Mike and the Mechanics seem to really take off. I mean, do you have an opinion, like overall, why that worked? Was it Paul? Was it the songs? Was it, what was it? I think it was the songs. Also the fact that they like Dire Straits, although they would like to, they might like to deny it. They were very yuppie-like, and I mean, when you've got songs like "All I Need Is a Miracle," uh, they just they they just sort of suited the era. Uh, plus, they were very chorus-heavy. Uh, Mike Rutherford writes in his books in his book how Tony Banks, who was the main songwriter for Genesis, always struggled with with writing choruses, which, which Tony Banks was quite hurt by, and. Uh, I, yeah, I think they were very chorus heavy. They were very, if you want to say, they were very immediate, very immediate sounding. And the aphorisms, although a lot of people might sneer at them, are very universal, like a beggar on a beach of gold, which the, 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 the theme is be grateful for what you have or the living years, which is, you know, be there for your parents. They're not going to be there one day. Yeah, that was definitely something that seemed to resonate, I think, with... Everybody, you know, back at the time, even because they were in their like late 30s, early 40s, looking at, you know, their parents, and now they're that age today, and they're doing the reverse of remembering, um, you know, the era of what their parents' music uh, grew up. But, um, you know, the one curiosity, because I'm, I'm not, you know, definitely a granular searcher on Paul Carrick, was he wrote the song for the Eagles just around the time of Mike and the Mechanics? Uh, yes, I think Paul McCarrick wrote for the Eagles. Uh, I didn't. We didn't talk about it in the interview. Yeah, it's um, a song called Love Will Keep Us Alive. I think Paul did it himself on a, recent, uh, on a recent record for himself. And I listened to it, um, the Eagles version of it, and it's got a very high register on it. And so... I was quite surprised that I would think, wow, this is a Paul Carrick song. I mean, he co-wrote it with two other people, but I I quite liked it because it does have that uh, soothing, maybe that's the whole thing. Maybe that's the word, the adjective we need to talk about with Paul Carrick is soothing. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, does, would you say it's distinctive enough that uh, that's why people, do they want Paul Carrick? I mean, what is it that makes him go from project to project, in your opinion? I think it's just he enjoys, enjoys the work. I have to admit, I, I, I hate the Eagles. I'm with, I'm with, uh, I'm with Joe Goldblum's character, not Jeff Goldblum's. I'm with the big Lebowski on that one. Uh, what's the name of that actor? Oh, Jeff Bridges. That's it. Yeah. I'm, I feel like him in the taxi being like, Hey man, I hate the Eagles. (laughs) You know, it's, it is hard sometimes for people to relate, but then again, it's part of that whole, I'm not sure. Let me say this about the Eagles and then I'll get back to Paul Carrick for a minute. I I've watched live videos and they're just not theatrical. The songs are very expansive, so to speak, and, and sort of comfy, you know, that's a word. They're very comforting, which Paul Carrick is also, but he's got this sort of um, anthem quality, especially maybe that's why, um, you know, he can, do such a spectacular work on such a big thing like the wall maybe maybe that's where it stems from well they they also cut the eagles covered one of his tracks on the long road out of eden album i i don't want to hear anymore but they 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 played is that something that we also tend to forget too is is how much lyrically um he has contributed to songs uh because we're just so focused on his voice quite possibly i mean he well, he mentioned to me that he that he came up that he effectively came up with the vocal melody for Silent Running, but uh, B. A. Robertson wrote most of the lyrics on that one. Who's uh, B. A. Robertson is a is a is an accomplished writer. And also, um, you know, he you don't tend to think of him in sort of a in that way, and you know, uh, hooking up with people and and doing work like that, like working with um, you know, Roxy Music or you know, you tend to think more keyboard work. I mean, I even found out he did work on the Smiths debut album. I mean, come on. What is that? Is that what what happened there? <laughs> That's incredible. I did not know that. Um, and I, I thought I knew quite a lot about the Smiths. I was very, I actually bumped into Morrissey uh, recently in Dublin. Uh, it was actually two days before Andy Rourke died, which was very sad. Did, did Morrissey have anything to say when you bumped into him? <laughs> no, he, the man who was with them the man maybe his part his real life partner basically told me to go away i will tell you that i also bumped into morrissey really <laughs> during my time in england and um he was with somebody at that time this was 1990 but um he was actually going through uh cd's at the time and they were elton john cd's <laughs> so um he actually i had bought just a single of his at the time uh i think it was november spawned a monster and he autographed it for my sister um, before he got recognized. We were at the HMV, the on Oxford Street. Um, so anyway, back to Paul Carrick. Um, so he's, you know, he's he's getting up in the years now. He's and but he's releasing like every six months, it seems. He's just got so much going on, correct? Yes. I mean, he tours. I mean. I'm just looking at his wiki now. I didn't realize he toured with Ringo Starr at one point in an iteration of the, the All-Star Band. Yeah, that sounds something typical. Like, that's exactly what Paul Carrick would do, <laughs> you know, for that time. But his uh, output 
um, you know, is phenomenal. It's, yeah. I mean, it seems to be focused on that swing soul genre. Um, but then again, he would be speaking to his demographic, correct, nowadays? I think so, yeah. Um, uh, he's, he's, he's also putting a twist on it, uh, you know, p- perhaps because perhaps he's not rocking out like he might have in the 1980s. But uh, yeah, like I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm list- uh, the one and one album. Like his his voice was still as good as it ever was. And yes, you're right. I'm I'm looking at his wiki now. He did play keyboards on the first Smiths album. It's kind of like mind blowing. I mean, it's it's nothing that he has to sort of you know pull out of his bag and do on stage. Um, <clears throat> just because that's just you know what he, what he did. But isn't it interesting? Um, and I know it's unfair to make the assumption or the uh the comparison to between him and say paul mccartney um where you have paul's like you know 10 years older than than paul carrick but what is it how is it just um sort of you know you're speaking to the same age group you know the age group that 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 both of them grew up with and now we're in their age and slightly younger paul wants to keep on rocking yeah but paul carrick wants to go and you know do what he's doing right now and he doesn't rock out with stage lights and a big show and smoke bombs and stuff i mean do you have what would be your personal insight as to those two differences i think just um i think just one just wants to do it very big and one wants to do it on a smaller scale I don't think it's anything more profound than that. I have a theory as to why Paul McCartney's vocals mightn't mightn't hit the highs that they once did, because for Culture Sonar, I wrote a piece on Run Devil Run, and I discovered that he was actually really screaming it out at that time, probably because he just lost Linda McCartney, and this was a therapy for him. And I think he may have shot his vocals during that period. That's quite, yeah, that's quite interesting. He... He sounded pretty good on Chaos and Creation. I think that was 2004, maybe. Yeah. But I can absolutely see, um, you know, the, you know, the time period that that could have happened. And um, I think it's just like you say, it's a, it's a legacy issue. Um, people want that song, that sound. Uh, Paul Carrick can still do it um, and deliver, you know, but maybe he just doesn't feel comfortable. That's not who he is anymore, would you say? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. There's a chance that Paul Carrick has also taken better care of his voice. I mean, uh, Mick Jagger has has kept care of his voice since the 1970s, which apparently Paul McCartney didn't do. Uh, I mean, it just wasn't. Uh, I don't think Roger Daltrey took care of his voice either. They they they'd say you need to you need to exercise your voice and you need to take take good to take good care of it. So who knows? Maybe Paul Carrick did that. It could be too, and he's obviously not been. Um, he's he's had two um, gifts: his voice and his keyboard work. Yes. So people are able to call on him for either one or the other, and. That's probably been his blessing is that he is able to contribute, you know, like we said, <laughs> playing on, uh, you know, the Smiths, but then going on tour and singing with Roger Waters. Yes, I agree. I mean, 
Yeah, I think the only other person I can think of offhand who can do both is Phil Collins. Although, of course, Phil Collins had a solo career that kind of overshadowed everything. Right. That's kind of interesting that, um, and, you know, Phil uh, admitted, you know, now that he has to sing sitting and letting his son Nick do the drums too because of all of that drumming. Yeah. That, um, you know, messed him up. And I want to go off on a big tangent here just for a second because we're talking about legacy and error and Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins. Um, there was a, a television show back in the 70s called The Midnight Special. Yes. And they have just, or they have been um, establishing themselves on YouTube and re-sort of doing their their videos and presentations and performances of the artists that appeared on the show. And one that had a real big, big, big mind blow was uh, a performance of Genesis. And watching that kind of was just uh, like incredible they were a lot of people were commenting and saying that they couldn't believe they were finally seeing it i think this was from 1971 yes and uh the sound was great they they really gave props to the sound engineers on the show and so you've got uh phil in his bearded uh overalls look wearing stage <laughs> mm -hmm. to the side you're watching tony banks do his stuff you're watching mike rutherford do his stuff they really made it a collaborative effort even though of course Peter was out there with his makeup and his weird shaved head and all that other sort of stuff. So we're blessed that there are people that are going back and uh, sort of with AI technology, like they did with Get Back, with Peter Jackson doing Get Back, that they're able to sort of revisit, um, you know, a time where, you know, not a lot of people na nowadays were appreciative, but back then, no, you know, it was just like weird. <laughs> yes, of course. So I wanted to sort of, uh, you know, wrap up and, and find out, um, you know, you've, you've, like you said, have a deep appreciation for the music for a time that you weren't there for. And do you find that that's uh, prevalent a lot? Do you, do you have a lot of discussions with fellow uh, writers or appreciators that are, that are, that are your age? that are getting back to the, the earlier times and not just focusing exclusively on the Beatles, but I'm talking about that, that era. Yeah. I mean, there's a guy called Ethan Alexanian. I appeared on his podcast. I mean, he, he's about 10 years younger than me and he can tell you, like he, he told me who played the harmonica on the, on the, on, on a, a, a British show called the Grace of Wisdom's show. And uh, he, he, his, his knowledge is probably puts mine to, puts my, puts, puts mine to shame. I mean, uh, he, I, I turned to him before I, I did an interview on Keith West, an interview with Keith West. And so you feel that there is just, you you just sort of like discover these people, like because of the fact that they're just tuned into, um, you know, the style or the genre from, from that era. Yeah, I think I also in the UK, Cherry Red Records are doing great work, like a reviving all these these albums like they did a reissue of of mike mccartney's mcgear album four or five years ago which was fantastic i think i think that the reputation of that album has really shot up because of cherry reds of cherry reds reissuing and they also figured out that a lot of people said well that was like you know the the pre venus and mars kind of uh you know lineup because i think uh jimmy mcculloch played on that he did yeah they felt like um 
you know, that was like the lost, uh, you know, Wings album, so to speak, just only because, you know, everybody played on it so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, Denny Lane played some great guitar on that album. Yeah, we always, we always discover like these sort of lost gems, you know, uh, things that we couldn't see or hear, you know, which is why I think a lot of people went, you know, uh, insane with the uh, with the Genesis clip because bands were performing this stuff back then and there wasn't a deep understanding, hmm. uh, you know, of why Peter Gabriel looked and acted the way he did. Um, or, you know, again, with Squeeze, the hard to categorize uh, bands uh, from the 80s. And like I said, Paul drops in and then, you know, kind of fades back out. Um, but maybe we don't look at it like that anymore. Maybe that's why it's good to have you, um, you know, digging. <laughs> that's very kind. Uh, some people mightn't like me to dig too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, you know, we are living in this weird social media uh, era and we don't know where it's going to take us. But yes. like I said, as, as long as there is a generation before us, um, this music is is going to be listened to for forever, and Paul's voice will always just be um, magnificent. Paul Carrick's voice will just always be magnificent. So, uh, Owen, I want to thank you so much for contributing. Uh, you know your insights. Thank you for interviewing Paul Carrick. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, yeah, for those who want to read it, it's on Penny Black, which is a which is a British website. And I will definitely put up the link in the uh, show notes for everybody to to go back to. So thank you, Owen, for for everything. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, and and thank you for waving the squeeze banner. It's um, I, I'm glad to know that people enjoy them over in the U.S. I I I was worried they were too English to be in, enjoyed in the U.S. Uh, never. It's <laughs> it's always an open door policy here. Excellent. Uh, 